episode 28 of Etc. Etc. with Young Southpaw. That's moi. Me, if you ain't got your French tongue on. So I've been thinking lately. Why weren't they called the Water Beetles, you know? Like if they were going to spend so much time in there. Octopus's garden, I am the walrus, I mean, come on. Heck, if they all live in a yellow submarine, I contest that that already makes them water beetles. I guess it's debatable, though, you know, because they live in the sub. It's not, not technically touching the water themselves. But, I mean, legally, you could argue, I mean, if this ever went to court, that marine means water. And, like, how did they get there in the first place? Why were they fixing that hole? Could easily come from water damage. Though, oh, man, getting bugs in a submarine. That's terrifying, you know? And, like, they weren't a goth band. I wonder if there are any goth Beatles cover bands who, you know, change the lyrics to primarily deal with, you know, being trapped in a yellow or, or any colored submarine underwater that's full of bugs. I mean, probably make a good horror movie, I would think. Maxwell's Silver Hammer horror films, you know? Maxwell's Demon, make it even scarier. That perpetual motion machine, I mean, talk about sexy. You got that demon sorting the molecules, you know? Look it up. And while you're at it, give Velvet Goldmine another spin. But you know, Maxwell's demons, second law of thermodynamics, all that physics stuff. E equals MC squared, you know? MC Hammer 2! Though, huh? Please Hammer Don't Hurt Him doesn't really go with the whole hammer horror ethos. Though, Stop Hammer Time would be the perfect ad campaign. Back to the bugs on the submarine. I mean, what if they were all singing Can't Touch This? With the crew desperately trying to hammer them down. I mean, that'd be especially annoying. I'm Really, because I picture this as like a drone remix that Can't Touch This. With, like, the sound of flies buzzing, playing a prominent part in the track. Heck, get Bugs Bunny involved, too. But, you know, a version of Bugs that would be more appropriate to being trapped in a submarine infested with insects. Oh, imagine what the humans are going through. Having to deal with not only this humming and crawling of millions of winged critters. But also... A sarcastic talking rabbit. Oh man, the drama when bugs, you know, bit into the bone and unable to fight against this infestation any longer. Bugs is finally brought to the infirmary and on his last legs delivers his famous line, What's up, Doc? Only to have that Dr. B. You guessed it. Dr. Frankenstein. 
who Bugs genuinely believes is a specialist in infectious insect diseases. And like if the Beatles are on the sub too, you know, in my hour of darkness, I mean, whoa! Did McCartney compose Let It Be for a horror soundtrack? I mean, Let It Be was a film. Admittedly, not your typical slasher flick. And like when I find myself in times of trouble, I mean, that's the premise for every horror movie ever made. If y'all want to hear more of this story, and believe me, there's more. I mean, we haven't even gotten to the Dracula on Alcatraz film starring Christopher Lee, Paul McCartney, and a whole bunch of others, too. Bugs Buddy included. Well, head on over to YoungSouthPaw.com. It's this week's episode of the Young Southpaw Part of an Hour podcast. But now, let's get to this week's episode of this podcast. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to our guest, Mr. Louis Philippe. I've been a fan of for a long time, man. Got to hear some great stories about his time with L and Humbug Records. And he's back with a gorgeous new pop album recorded with the Nightmail as his backing band. The record's called Thunderclouds and is out December 11th. We covered a lot of ground, so let's get to it. All right. We're here today with Mr. Louis Philippe. How you doing tonight? I'm not too bad. Thank you very much. Thank you for bringing a bit of sunshine in uh, miserable London. Oh, man. Yeah, I, guess, <laughs> I guess it's dark there now, huh? <laughs> it's dark. It's five o'clock local time. It's been dark for an hour already. So it's pretty miserable. Ooh. It's not quite Helsinki in the middle of the, of the winter, but uh, we, we, we do make a rather good uh, uh, impression of it. Come three o'clock, it starts getting dark. So thank you for bringing sunshine. Oh, you're very welcome. Speaking of which... Your press release mentions, uses the phrase, the autumnal side of sunshine pop, which I thought was a beautiful phrase. It's not mine. Ah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Or maybe it was, I can't remember. Yes, autumnal it was actually a good, a good word, I think, to choose for the record. Yes. I, I know I associate certain bands and albums with certain seasons. Do you find the same? Yeah. Um, and I would say, like, if you say uh, autumnal, the clientele, for example, are very much a band with it, which I associate with, uh, uh, with that. Uh, with the spring, I would associate like Roger Nichols and the small circle of friends to go into something which is a little bit niche, but there you go. Um, I, would, uh, I would say a lot of, um, like the meters would be summery, would be okay. summer. Yeah. Okay. Because obviously you would go for the Beach Boys summer, yeah, but not all of the Beach Boys are summer. Some of the, be- some of the Beach Boys are actually winter. Some of the more um, uh, experimental stuff. But yes, I, I, I would. I wouldn't you know, go straight thinking, oh, yes, of course, this is a January record. This is a March record. Uh, but yes, it's not, it's not forcing um, to, to say, to associate um, a record or a type of music with a, a time of the year. Not at all. And autumn, for some reason, seems to be more evocative than other seasons. When it comes to music. Yes, I find that as well. And the clientele, clientele, I've, yeah, perfect example. I hadn't thought of them, but definitely. I, I think it's because um, in, in pop, there's always a, uh, a solar sunshine element, but in which, I mean, most great pop, 
I'm not saying my record is great. It is great, but that's not what I'm saying. Um, there's an element of melancholy and nostalgia. And this is, you know, like the leaves turning and uh, the days shortening and um, a different kind of warmth. So, yes, I suppose that autumn really fits in very well with uh, my idea of pop. Mm. Evokes twilight as well. Yeah. Sorry. Actually, there's, there's actually even the song on the, on the record, which is about Twilight, which is the, uh, the song about the mighty owl, which is the owl of Minerva, which only comes out when it gets dark. Excellent. There you go. There's a French phrase someone told me once, uh, entre les chiens et les loups. Entre chiens et loups. Yes. Marvelous expression. Yes. You can't tell whether it's, uh, I was going to say, you can't tell whether it's fish or fowl. No, you can't tell whether it's a dog or a wolf. Absolutely. This time of the, this time of the day, the most dangerous time of the day. When you're driving, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but there's that uh, idea of autumn as well with that sort of, uh, you know, the transition between summer and winter, that period. Mm-hmm. Yes. I would quite, I would quite, I would go with that. Definitely. And I think even when you look at the sleeve of the record, you've got an element of that which is very autumnal, you know. Yeah. Who did the sleeve? Uh, we did it. That, um, it's, it's, this, this band is uh, full of people uh, who are some multitaskers. So the, the photograph was taken by me, but the uh, lettering was painted by Robert, uh, the guitar player Robert Rotifer, who is a very talented painter uh, in his own right. And all the uh, putting together, editing, preparing the parts, making sure everything was done by Ian, the drummer, who is a bit of a genius at putting things together like that, who also edited our videos, for example. So it was all done in-house, so to speak. Excellent. I've only seen the um, Fall in a Daydream video. Are there more? There's one coming out tomorrow. Oh, all right. There's one coming out tomorrow. And there's a third one, which is for The Mighty Owl. And there's a third one coming uh, out on the 11th of December, which is the date that the album is released of um, Living on Borrowed Time. So there are three videos. And there's a fourth one, actually, which I can't talk about yet. Okay. <laughs> because I don't know if we're going to finish it in time. That's why. <laughs> ah. But the, uh, the Fall in the Daydream video is very pop. There's the lighting, roller mm-hmm. coaster tracks, very pop as well. Mm-hmm. Even though the subject matter is not exactly light and exactly poppy, but that's a different matter. Well, tell me about that song. Well, um, uh, it's perhaps a bit difficult to explain. I'll try, so bear with me. But you've been going with loads of very strange things in America over the past few years, and still are going through even stranger things right now. We are also going through very strange things in the, in the UK, particularly if you're like me, somebody who is, you know, a continental European. Mm-hmm. And so is Robert, a guitar player. He's Austrian. I'm French. I lived here in London for 32 years. Uh, Robert has lived in Canterbury for uh, over nearly 20 years, I think. And um, so we are going through our very strange, bizarre incomprehensible divorce with Europe at the moment, which has affected us tremendously. And it's something that Robert and I have been very much affected by. And I think the lyrics, strangely enough for me, do for once reflect a political situation. So even though you know you won't hear any slogans or anything like that, not quite my style, but I think the lyrics in particular, if not the music, have been very much um, 
word inspired would be wrong in this in this but i've been i would say that it has what is happening around us has seeped into the lyrical content and and you know fall in a daydream uh mentions one of the worst tragedies to happen in this city here uh, for a while which is the, the great fire of the grenfell tower in which you know over 70 people died and, and and the song is about the indifference of basically of the rest of the country to what happened to these poor people and um and and the way that the country has been hardening emotionally that it's that in a way it's it's been hardened by by brexit it's been hardened by the political situation it's been hardened by the economic situation and now by the pandemic in in such a way which makes it very difficult to deliver your nice sunshine songs which i would normally do and even though the music is very bouncy it's six eight waltz you know um but i think the lyrics are are, are going somewhere else i hope i haven't put off too many people from listening to it it's still a very poppy and i think catchy and pleasant thing to listen to but there's a bit of a sting in the tail mm. what brought you to london in the first place um i was at the time um uh, a musician between three jobs. Basically, I, I didn't have any money. Um, I'd released a, a few records for Disco de Crepuscule in Brussels. And I'd been approached by um, a label called Blanco y Negro. Now, Blanco y Negro people will know because it was the label that Everything But The Girl released their first proper big album uh, on. But it was a project which linked three of the big independents, Rough Trade, Cherry Red Records and Crepuscule. And the idea was to create a, a kind of pop uh, label um, with some jazz influences. I mean, some, I would say, not eccentric pop, but pop that didn't quite fit in the, uh, in the little holes that have been prepared for us by you know, the press, the media, and so forth. And I was one, supposed to be one of those uh, people. And uh, so I came to London and uh, lo and behold, between the time I decided to go to London and the time uh, I arrived in London, the label had collapsed. <laughs> or rather, the ANR who had recruited me, Michael Way, had uh, left, not necessarily of his own accord, uh, the record label. So he took me instead to this very strange house of pop called Air Records, um, and of which I was one of the first signings. And, and I immediately started to, to work for Air Records, not just as an artist, but also that somebody would give a hand, you know, playing some guitar, doing some vocals, doing some arrangements. Uh, I wouldn't say production, but mostly arrangements, things like that. And writing songs as well for other artists on the, on the, on the label. And I met my wife, my future wife, very quickly. I think I met my wife on the first day that I settled in London, oh, which wow. is, yes, I know. And I, I developed immediately some quite deep friendships. And, and also you have to remember that at the time, certainly, as one of my Canadian friends put it, um, uh, when people were asking you, oh, what do you do? You know, the typical question. If you answered, oh, I live in London, that was enough for many people because they thought that was cool. So I think there was always this ambition to be in, in, you know, in the city that was uh, well, the magnet for for all people who wanted to have something to do with, with pop music, basically, at the time. I mean. You know, I arrived in, on the 27th of December, 19, 1986, which is a long time ago. 
So it was still, you know, it was the uh, last hooray of, of the new wave, basically. Uh, I was on the tail of that particular comet. And, uh, but it felt like the right place to be. And, I, and it was the right place to be. And it's the place where I've been ever since. Excellent. And L, L is such a wonderful, unique label. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to ask you, a uh, song I love, King of Luxembourg's Baby, you wrote. I did. Yes. Tell me about that one. Cause... Well, it was part of, um, what's funny is I never recorded it myself. Yeah. <laughs> and and <laughs> I, I remember recording the demo uh, at the, back at the farm, um, back at the ranch uh, in Normandy, where I was born and grew up as my, my parents' uh, farmers, fruit farmers. And um, I recorded it in one of the uh, cold storage rooms, the demo with a friend of mine. And we put that on a cassette as one did at the time. And I sent this cassette to Mike and Mike Hallway as one of the potential singles uh, or potential songs that we to be included in my, on my second album. And uh, he liked it so much that he gave it to Simon. <laughs> I was all for it. I was all for it because I had moved a bit from that direction. I thought, yeah, let's, let's, let's go for that. Um, and, and so I'm, um, it, it was part of the, uh, part of suppose, my reward for working on, uh, with Simon on, on The Roll Bastard, which is still one of my favorite records. Um, and it was that to have a couple of my songs featured on that. And I had another one as well, which I wrote with Simon on, on Sir, the follow-up album. But that's, that's basically the story is that, Mike very much he thought of me uh, for the label as both he called me his Trojan horse. He said because you've got a crude, you've got a crooning voice, so we never know you might actually get a hit. And um, and the other thing was the guy whom you can call and who can write a song, write songs to order almost uh, a kind of voice and heart in um, in in one. Or I would rather, you know, I would hope Liber and Stoller and Man and Vile and Goffin and King without the hits. Um, and so he would ask me to, to write songs, and, which is how I wrote uh, the whole album for Anthony Adverse, The Red Shoes. And um, I, I wrote a couple of other things for, um, which didn't see the light of day uh, for the Florentines. Uh, and also uh, with uh, Martin Bates of ILS in Gaza, we actually did a whole album together, which never was, was never, were never released. I just remembered that, you know. Wow, so it's just sitting there? Oh. Yeah, it's it's uh, the only shape in which it exists is on a four-track um, cassette. You know the old demo things that we we use these old tape recorders, four-track. Yeah, wow. I, I've I've got it, so I can't play it because obviously it doesn't go at the same speed, and you wouldn't hear the song. songs that I recorded at Martin's place in near Coventry. Wow. I just remember that amazing. All right, well, maybe, maybe there's a new release in 2021 you know, from the Vols. I, I know some people would be very excited about that. Well, maybe, maybe I'll get in touch with Martin, actually. I'll make a note of that. Excellent. Uh, another, well, I don't know, I can't, another indie label that I love, I interviewed Kevin Crace a few months ago to talk about Humbug Records, which you were involved in as well. <laughs> yes, I was, yes. Yeah, um, I've, I've been involved with a number of, Strange, unusual record labels through my life, I suppose. (laughs) 
I like there's no information about humbug out there, which is why I called Kevin and said, you know, can you tell the story? Do you have anything do you want to tell us about your time with? Um, I, I would say that um, I would have loads to say about Kevin and, and humbug. I actually saw Kevin not that long ago. Uh, we bumped into each other at uh, the premiere of a documentary on Martin Newell, you know, before the lockdown um, at, uh, in the cinema in London. And Kevin hadn't changed. He was still as, a, as a thin as a rake as he's ever been with his, uh, his amazing hair and amazing eyes. <laughs> and um, he's, a, he's a, quite a character. And um, I think Kevin was, well, you know, Kevin's background was in distribution. He was working with Pinnacle at the time. And, and you could see that what was happening to the record industry at the time is that there was no place left for people like me or, or Martin or other people um, who we like, like Monty or uh, T.B. Smith, who was one of his uh, good friends and still is. Um, and so he thought, well, let's put together this thing and, and see what we can do about it. I mean, I wouldn't say that Humbug was the most professionally run label I've ever worked with. <laughs> I do remember one thing which might amuse you is that uh, I think that out of the proceeds of some of the sales, because we did sell a few records, not that many, out of the proceeds of the sales, I remember arriving at the office, which was on the New Ballspond Road, which is not the nicest part in London. But in the office, there was this, uh, look at the back of the room, there was this Dalek. You know what a Dalek is? Yeah. (laughs) Doctor Who. He had one bought one of the original Daleks. Which is, you know, that's humbug for you. And, and, uh, but I, I'm, I'm really grateful to, to Kevin for many things. And, and obviously, um, I mean, he re-released one of my, you know, my, first, my first album, which had, had only been released in Japan before that. And also, and I would say almost especially so, for putting me in touch with Martin Newell and giving me a chance to work with somebody whom I think is, uh, I don't know if he's the greatest living Englishman, but he's certainly the greatest English lyricist, uh, living lyricist, and uh, one of the great tunesmiths of his generation, and somebody who should be spoken about in you know same breath as people like Andy Partridge or you know Ray Davis, maybe even that. Um, I mean, as one of the obviously illegitimate uh, issue of uh, Ray Davis, like we all are. But, but Martin is, uh, is an absolutely magnificent songwriter. Still is, still produces gorgeous, gorgeous songs, mm. um, which unfortunately not enough people have heard about or have heard full stop. If they did, I think he would be, I mean, his day will come. I'm, I'm sure about that. His day will come. People realize, wow, we had this person. We have this person in our midst who has written all these magnificent tunes. So Humbug was, was fantastic for that because I, I produced... Uh, the off album uh, for Martin in, in very peculiar circumstances that I really cannot go into. Okay. <laughs> but it was, was a bit hairy as an experience, but we, I loved doing it. And I, I love some of the things we did with it. Um, I, you know, it's uh, not many records which are uh, recorded uh, with a single microphone in the middle of the forest, but you know, one of the tunes on that record is recorded like that and sounds gorgeous actually. Oh really? Which one? Uh, gosh, the t- titles, you know, I'm, I'm terrible with titles. Uh, Goodnight Country Girl. Oh, probably my favorite on that album. It's, it's, it's glorious. It's glorious. Um, so, yes, that's literally, we, we started a fire. Uh, the, the dog was running around. 
Martinus Mendelin, and I was there freezing, <laughs> holding the microphone with my little portable DAT machine. And uh, this is how we, we recorded it. Some of the, the same, similarly, we recorded some of the songs in his living room. He had a tack piano, which is completely out of tune. And we recorded, I mean, Line Strunk on Sunlight was recorded there. And then we overdubbed and had to detune all the violins. And we had to sing out of tune so that it would go with the, uh, with the original piano track, well, my goodness. So it was a bit wow. hairy, but it was, it, was, it was great to do that with Martin. Oh, excellent. Wow. You mentioned your parents were fruit farmers. I always associate fruit with pop music, just the sweetness. Yes. Do you remember when you fell in love with pop music as a kid? Um, I think I was born in love with pop music. Um, I think I was asked the question recently, what is the first tune you can remember hearing that you really liked? And, um, and it was this cheesy uh, M.O.R. hit, um, but which is a beautiful pop tune, uh, which is called Cast Your Fate to the Wind by Sans Orchestral. Uh, which has got one of the most glorious um, uh, melodies, uh, but which is a completely pop tune. But it sounds a bit when you start, you think, oh, is that going to be, uh, I don't know, one of those cheesy, you know, uh, MF music for pleasure kind of tunes. And I think it, the tune was written by Vince Guarani, um, the, jazz, the Jasmine. And, and if you don't know it, just listen to it or even put a little snippet in, in this, this podcast. And it was pop. And that's the first tune I remember that being completely obsessed with. And I was at the time like four years old. So, and you, and you see as well the fact of having an elder brother, or I should say older brother, by six years. So my brother was banging time to be uh, caught in the, the whirlwind of Beatlemania. Mm. Just, he was a little bit on the young side, but he was, he was old enough to, to buy the singles. So that's what he would play in the room next to mine. So mm. I remember hearing Girl, the first time he played it, I thought, wow, this is great. Um, so I was very, very young, but still, it can, t- you know, and the fact when you grew up, uh, you grew up in a, in, in, in a home where there is an awful lot of music being played, and my mother is a great music lover, and... She loves jazz, but she's also a great lover of Michel Legrand and, uh, and of really good French chansons. So I think if you put all that together, I think you understand why I became who I became, musically speaking. Mm. Okay. But pop, definitely, from the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So let's get to the new record. I, it's hard to believe this was the first time you've done a record live, with a live band in the studio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's my 17th album and, um, plus all the records I've done with other people. And so you can add another 30 or whatever. And it's the first time we really had a live band in the studio. I've worked with the band before. There was an album of mine called my favorite part of you, which I recorded with, um, with, with a proper band, but, most of the recording was done, uh, you know, separately. So that you would put the drums tracks first, then you would put, then you would put the bass. So you would do drums and bass if you felt really, wow, let's take it, you know, to that space. There, it was completely different because um, we'd done some rehearsal before, which I'd never done before. I'd never rehearsed an album before. Wow. It's, yeah, I know. 
So, and, you know, being with Ian and Andy and, and, and Robert, and we basically just, I sat at the piano and Andy on his bass, Robert on his guitar, Ian at the drums, off we go. And um, even though, you know, we, we did some overdubs afterwards, and I know it sounds very expensive uh, because of where it was and because how well it was recorded in beautiful place that we were in, but it was more or less done, yes, as a, as a straight live record. And, it was done at a pace that people would associate with the early 1960s, not with the 2000s. Mm. So it was done incredibly quickly, including by you know, contemporary standards. So, um, oh, I lost you for a second here. Okay. Is that fine? I, 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 okay. No, but otherwise, yes, it's the first time I've done, um, I've done a proper live record. It's very exciting, I must say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How did it all come together? Um, I I have to thank Robert, um, who convinced me to play uh, at a place called the Lexington, a marvelous club in uh, in London, where I performed a few times before. I've known yeah, I mean for fifteen years or so now, and um, I think we toyed the idea of you know we would go to each other's concerts and things like that. I was toying with the idea of covering some of his songs even at, at times. Um, and I did, I covered one song of his this summer. Anyway, um, he said, well, there's this opportunity, Lexington, you like it? Yeah, I love it. Um, we're organizing with Tapete, the German label, uh, a series of gigs uh, to celebrate the 15th anniversary of the label. And you know, there'll be some good people, Robert Foster of, uh, of the Kobe Twins will be playing. And we'll be backing him, and that we, that is the nightmare. Uh, the monochrome set will be there. So yeah, and, and I've always loved the monochrome set, and I, I've known Bid for 30 years. Um, Friedrich Sunlight, which is this absolutely fantastic band, um, which is an interpreted German band. And, uh, the, um, and I thought, well, actually, he got the band together, uh, so him, Ian, and Robert, and we started rehearsing in, um, in Highbury. And from the very first you know, rehearsal, I thought these are the guys that I can play with because they have the same kind of culture, the same feel, the same affinity with, uh, uh, with, pop, with pop music. Uh, they also are very capable, which because some of my music is a little bit complicated to execute. Um, and they had exactly the right spirit, attitude. They were fun. Uh, so we thought, Oh, let's do it. And we had a great gig. And many people who've seen, um, you know, a few of my gigs will, will tell you that it probably was the best that I get, ever gave in this kind of configuration. And it felt great to us. It felt really great. So we thought we've got to do a record. And then, you know, what happens, happens is that you've got to synchronize the diaries of everybody. You've got to find the time and so on. And then as every time we seem to be on the cusp of doing something, something would happen. And then... COVID happened <laughs> and Robert and I talked to each other and we thought we've really got to do it now. We've really got to do it because otherwise we've got Brexit coming. We've got this pandemic. We've got to find a way to do this record before it's too late. So there was a real sense of urgency about it. In fact, I'll tell you that from the moment that we decided to do the record um, and the, the day we finished it, I think maybe a month had passed. So within a month we'd, chosen the songs, rehearsed them, recorded them, mixed them, 
sent, done the videos, done everything, the artwork, everything was done within a month or so. And, 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 and there was, yes, a real sense of urgency about it. And I, I don't know if you can feel it in the record. I, I don't feel it in, in an obvious way. As it, it's not a record that we say is backly in French. It's not something that was done quickly on the cheap. Quite the opposite, it was done quickly, but with people, I think, who were on top of what they were doing, and certainly not on the cheap. Rimshot is not the cheap studio, bloody hell. <laughs> uh, but worth every penny. Uh, I recommend it. You know, please, you know, if you're looking for a great studio in rural England, um, go for Rimshot in Sittingbourne. It's wonderful. And we'll be back there. So that's how the record came about. You know, it's thanks to Robert. It's thanks to Gunther of Tapete Records, who convinced you know, us that, you know, it was possible, and who also financed it, which is... You know, this amazing thing in this day and age to have record companies paying for a record, you know, it's almost unheard of. Yeah. Now you do a record in your bedroom, your front room, your, you know, with friends, you do everything and you, then you find a label and you create your own label. But it's, it's done the old fashioned way uh, in, in a sense. And I'm quite happy with that. I'm quite happy with that. I'm very yeah. happy with that. <laughs> so, wow. you know, so it's, it's my own project restart. Great. Now the gig you did at the Lexington, did you do any of these songs that were, are on the record? No. Um, no, uh, it was all the, the songs that were on the record were songs chosen from my backlog, which is, you can imagine, it was rather considerable um, because the last uh, songs uh, of mine uh, which had been put on the record were the songs I'd written for the uh, Ocean Tango uh, project with my Swedish friends from Test Build. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is, album. I think it's a wonderful album. And uh, I say that all the more easily that quite a few of the songs, and for me, some of the best songs are, were not written by me, but by Peter Herbert's song, uh, who is an absolutely magical songwriter. Uh, it's, it's not on Bandcamp, unfortunately. It's a very difficult album to find. And I, I've got to convince Peter to do something about it because I'm really proud of it. Anyway, so you can imagine there was a lot of back material. Um, and, and so Robert and I went through... He went, came to my home, to this room, because the piano is just on the other side. And we went through, I think, 70 tunes or something like that. And we chose the ones which obviously we thought were good enough, but also would be, um, you know, you could execute a range for this type of, of band. Because the prime is that some of my stuff is very orchestral, and you're not going to be orchestral with, you know, a four-piece band, which is with an added strings player and added trumpet player and a bit of mellotron. You can't do that. So you had to find songs which worked in that kind of context. And then afterwards, you know, a bit of rehearsal and so forth. But um, uh, the stuff we'd done at the, uh, at, at the Lexington, and um, some of which, I, by the way, I should tell you, because we're going to do, I don't know if you know about that, but we're going to do a live gig uh, in December. Excellent. And um, uh, on the net, but it's going to be a, uh, a proper one, you know, like properly filmed, properly engineered and so forth. And we're going back to the studio to Rimshot and Sittingbourne and um, uh, on the 16th of December. So just five days after the album's official release and we'll be doing a full set. So that will be um, on, on live on the internet uh, through a dedicated website and everything. So very posh, you know, Great. Like six cameras and wow. all these sort of things, and really good sound. I hope so, and I hope we have, you know, we're good enough to, you know, we, we can do something which is as good as we hope to. But that's also um, quite an event for us, and you know, it it takes a bloody lockdown to actually.
I mean, how paradoxical is that? This is a strange age. Indeed. So let's let's talk about some of the songs on the record. I think my favorite is Rio Grande. I mean, that instrumental intro is just pop perfection. It's so... Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) That's the way we felt about it when we started. And I I hope you can feel it, but we were having such fun banging those calls. Yeah. We really went into it. It's really had fun going bang, 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 bang. So nice. Fall to the bar. And then... Shanti's wonderful trumpet playing, I mean, which is just, just glorious. And, and this is the, you know, because in a way, I mean, um, uh, it, 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 this song, um, this kind of little suite, was actually the way I'd thought about the record before we started working together. Because I, in my mind, I, I, I was thinking of doing a, a, quite an experimental album, miniatures, or like vignettes and so forth, which would be stuck together. Point, uh, the fact of you know using musical cells rather than verse chorus verse chorus cells and this one is uh, was actually to start with was a cell and then we realized actually no it's a song and it works perfectly well even though we have got three different very different sections a very poppy one a kind of weird quite menacing one and then a pop song with a proper pop chorus which goes back into, and yeah, no, it works. It does work. That's, I suppose, it's to use a word which is tainted these days. It's almost proggy, but in the kind of Canterbury prog kind of, okay. you know, yeah, Canterbury, I'm not thinking about, you know, Genesis, certainly not. <laughs> I'm more thinking Caravan and National Health. So it's definitely pop music, but structurally, it's a bit of a funny house we built there, but it's still pop. I still think it's just just pure pop, really. Mm. That was the idea, and that uh, well, that was the idea. That was what it felt like to us. Um, that it was um, a pure pop song, even the way that you know the the, the vocal harmony in the chorus, uh, which is built under the the lead, the lead line, which is a typical kind of pop gesture, English pop gesture, or the orchestration and the use of, of the 12 string and so forth. That was, that was pure pop, but that's really our language. You know, when that's the advantage of working with people who share the same feel for things. And, and, and very often, you know, I wouldn't say I have the same ideas, but as soon as you've got an idea, they see immediately what you mean by that. Immediately, you don't need to explain anything. So yeah, mm. cool. We understand what you mean there. Now these cells you mentioned, is that like Alphaville? Yeah, which was at the beginning of Cell, which is only like two bars. Hmm. I think, what are you going to do with it? Well, I thought, first of all, that the tune was so pregnant. Um, that's, a, that's a Gallicism, by the way. <laughs> um, pregnant, not in that sense. But uh, it has something incredibly insistent to it. And once it gets in your brain, as it got in mine, I just couldn't get rid of it. And I thought, all right, I'm going to do what my friend Sean O'Hagan would do with this. So, and, and which means I'm not going to develop it. So it's purely going to be about the orchestration and the arrangement. It's not going to be about musical development. And which is probably the first time I've done anything like that. And which is wonderfully. I lost your sound. <laughs> am I back? 
You're back. <laughs> I'm back. I said that was not a, a live track. I mean, we the, the basic, the very basic thing was done live with Robert, uh, Robert, Andy, Paul. Uh, I say Paul Shanti. His other his second name is Paul uh, Shanti. Uh, the four of us plus plus Shanti. We played it live, but then afterwards, I started having fun on the clavinovar and on the mellotron, <laughs> and Ian with a bit of percussion as well. So yeah, that that was. Uh, to start with, it was one of those vignettes. I've got plenty. Uh, that's that's the that's a great thing. I, uh, you know, I always when I finish a record, in this particular case, I do have the music, which is uh, reassuring. The, the title is that a Godard reference? Yep, and um, it has to do with, and again, it's Robert and me thinking the same thing at the same time. Um when I was showing uh, the baseline to um, uh, Living on Borrowed Time and we started to rehearse it and then we did this and, and Robert said something like, um, did I just see Lemmy Caution walk past? And I said, you've got it. That's exactly it. That's the title of the tune. Yeah. <laughs> now, Living on Borrowed Time, mm. another one of my favorites, um, what I, I really like is when you're about to hit the chorus, it seems like you're going to hit a major chord, but you don't. And it's that <laughs> expectation that is really satisfying. You keep it minor. <laughs> yes, sense. absolutely. Well, absolutely. Um, it's, there, there have got to be some... Uh, there is, you know, you say that, and it's, it's something that I... Something somebody else um, mentioned to me, who, who is Sean O'Hagan. Yeah, he said, uh, and he said, oh, I like the way it goes. I like the way it goes, Louis. And um, uh, yes, and, and you know what? It's a, it's a funny one. It's a song that I uh, wrote entirely in my head. I mean, every single part. And uh, it doesn't happen every day, that. But like every single part. I didn't go to the piano. When we went to the rehearsal, I hadn't even played it on the piano. I, I just told guys, this is the bass line, this is the drums, these are the chords, that's it. Wow. And this is how we went, this he went. And, and then, you know, then things start to be added up. Like Robert says, what if I use the bottleneck? Yes. Um, and then the outro, which is, you know, very much going towards Les Baxter and Henry Mancini. Um, but, in a kind of film noir setting. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a funny one. I, I do hope, you know, I always try to put a few, what I would call harmonic bombs in songs, so that uh, moments, twists and turns that you don't expect that we catch your and think, ooh, I wasn't expecting, you know, that sounds a little bit funny or discordant or, I always try to put one of those, you know, in, uh, or two in, in, in every song I, I write. And, it's not something conscious, by the way, is that if it isn't there, I feel it's incomplete. That's rather the, the way I, I see it. Nice. There's another one in um, When London Burns. I had the expectation it seems like it's headed for like a big Ooh. chorus and it kind of takes a different turn. There's still like a lot of energy, but it's not that chorus that I was expecting, if that makes sense. When you hit the uh, take a breath, take a look part. Oh, gosh. Wait until you hear the remix. Oh. All right. <laughs> <laughs> it was born as a vignette. 
it was born as a vignette, as just a couple of cells. Oh. And then I realized playing it with, playing it with Robert, I thought, goodness me, that's bloody catchy this. <laughs> and um, especially the, the trumpet line, which I kept singing over and over and over again. And um, yes, it is, it, it is a bit unexpected, I suppose, but because the, the, I, I, I don't know how to say it, but when I started writing songs, I think I was very aware of uh, the need for structure. And if you're doing pop as in intro, verse, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, middle eight, chorus, chorus, coda sort of thing. I was very aware of it and I think too much so. And as I, you know, I carried on writing, I suppose it's, it's become kind of a natural language. So I don't think in those terms now, and which explains some of the shape of, of some of the songs um, are a bit unusual. So you will not, I mean, this song, you know, um, when London burns, what is the chorus? It's hard to tell. Is it what you start with or is it the uh, second, let me say, cell? Um, um, you know, the man who had it all is like a, sort of like a little sweet or, or no sound hits this kind of big Walker Brothers thing. Um, perhaps at the moment where you don't expect it. And is that the chorus? No, it's not a chorus. It's kind of a middle eight, but it sort of works like a chorus. So I, I guess I've, I've, I've put aside um, the, the two obviously craftsmen-like or crafty side of songwriting and try to be a bit more, um, which I had, for example, the last album I did under my own name, An Unknown Spring, which I'm very happy with, but there was a lot of, effort in there, for example, to avoid repetition. And it was like a mental thing that I decided I'm fed up with songs which go only one way. So let's try something different, which we did. This time it was more like, oh, okay, I feel, I feel at ease in this format. That's my natural environment. Why don't I just enjoy it and, and, and live and breathe in it and, and just let things flow perhaps more than, than is usual. And, and also, I suppose, you know, it's also uh, a, a consequence of working with my friend Stuart Moxon, you know, um, on, on these albums together, and especially the last one, The Devil Loves, which, you know, amazingly enough, was only released, you know, in May this year. Wow. And, 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 um, and, and Stuart has a very different approach to, to songwriting to mine. But we've still got, we've got the same sense of form, I think, and structure, both of us. And that we've got many other things in common. But Stuart has a very organic way of writing, which um, I suppose I've, I've uh, assimilated. You, you keep assimilating all the time. And also the fact that I've listened to an awful lot of uh, Brazilian music and classical music, 20th century music, uh, perhaps more than I've listened to pop and, and, and rock, whatever rock is. Uh, this, might, this might explain that, a greater freedom. So. I'm diverging. I'm going in all sorts of directions, but there you go. This is where I, this is this is you know why you've got what you've got. Hmm. Uh, no sound covers an awful lot of emotional territory in that chorus very quickly. Then again, in the middle eight, it was like yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that's not me who thought about it. It's just it's it's a kind of register which I use because I can I can sing out. Um, and I, I've done it rarely in, in, in the past. I've, I've 
tried to be more delicate in my delivery, but there are moments there's a song on Azure, Your Life, which is the moment where I realized that I could really belt it out. And I, you know, it sounded okay. And, and this type of delivery actually suits, suits my voice in, in a funny way. Not all the time, but it, it just does work. And as you said, um, it covers a, a, a wide range of, um, of emotions. Um, I mean, what they are, I, sh I don't think I need to say what they are because I think they're pretty obvious when you listen to the music yeah. and to, to the words. Uh, but there is certainly um, uh, an urge to, to have a big yes, a big sense of assenting to life, whatever happens, um, which is what I, which, you know, for me comes from, even, even from, you know, in a very dark environment, like the, the environment of the, the, the universe, the song starts with the world in which it starts. It's a very dark, uh, it's not, um, it's not dusk, it's, it's the deepest night, really. But, um, and maybe it's because the, the, the kind of churchy chords and the inversions are very churchy um, on, on this big, massive middle eight. Um, mm. I was thinking of Judy Sill, who is one of my all-time <laughs> heroes. And because even just, just playing those uh, C major, which I do very rarely, but I do this, this C major with this particular inversion for me immediately brings to mind Judy Sill. So the kind of, it's like pop, which has gone to church. You see what I mean? Mm. And, and there was very much this element. And um, so it's very duty silly for me, this type of song. And that she's another one who is all about um, shade and nuance, you know, when some of the songs are so, I mean, solar and, and the tunes are absolutely astonishing. And, but there's always this behind this incredible self-doubt that she had and this incredible frailty and mm. beauty that she had, inner beauty that she had and soulfulness. Um, so I suppose that is a kind of ideal that you think, well, it's possible to do music, which is like that. You know, you don't hold back. It's like, don't be afraid to, to be yourself. Don't be afraid to show yourself, you know, mm. which is but not very... Yeah, sorry, please. No, no, please, you. I don't no, 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 I would say this, it's, not very, it's not necessarily very pop in you know, the way people think about pop, but if you think about great pop records, they do have this about it. I find the Beach Boys, I mean, I, I, I break down in tears when I listen to some of the songs, which are the most popular songs ever, ever written. But there is always this undercurrent of, of melancholy mm. uh, in, in the very best of them and in what I love the most about them. Um, you know, Odyssey and Oracle, which is the other record that I, you know, uh, basically built my pop culture on, has also got all of these moments of, um, you know, which has very bittersweet. I mean, bittersweet is the Bob Rummels, the Left Bank, of course. Uh, all the music that I really love has got this, this element of ambiguity, emotional ambiguity about it. But it's still very poppy and light and nice to the ear. Mm. Very important. <laughs> Love is the only light. It's soul music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hope the rest is too. But no, it's funny because I really hesitated um, before I put the song to the guys. And because I thought, you know, I don't want to sound like the guy who is trying to be a gospel singer because I'm not a gospel singer. On the other hand, um, I can sing stuff like that. Uh, which comes to as a surprise to many people, but 
when people, you know, but funnily enough, you say gospel, but I was more, th- we were more thinking it's Andy just got it right. He said, oh, that's your Todd Rundgren number. I said, ah, yes, you got it. Because it's not straight gospel, of course not, but it's got kind of soulful inflections in the way it is sung and the, the harmonies and are, except that the harmonies of the chorus are very utopia-like. Yep. Uh, with two major sevens, which is one one of uh, you know the uh, one of the causes actually uh, played before it should be played, um, and even the little figure at the end, and and we thought, and once he said that, I thought yes, well I think I can sing it because I don't want to I, I don't want to pose as somebody who is pretending to be a gospel singer because I am not. On the other hand, I'm somebody who for whom this type of music, which you know you might say. Um, I mean, Todd Rundgren would be one, and also some, even some, some Steely Dan would be, uh, you know, come to mind. Um, yes, very much, that's very much where I come from, musically speaking. So I, I had a way to connect it to something that I felt more at ease with, and, and then go for it, and, and love singing it. That would definitely be on the, on the set list on, on the 16th. Oh, nice. <laughs> so you mentioned the, your, uh, the Devil Laughs. Yeah. Tell, tell me about how that album came together. Um, I've known Stuart for 27 years uh, and we've worked together for all these 27 years, but I was usually, uh, up until recently, somebody who was a sideman and a companionist, uh, a friend, a very close friend, um, part of the band when we played um, live. Uh, I was on keyboards for some reason. And then um, when Stuart came with a few songs, quite a few songs actually, in the early 2000s, uh, after we'd already been recording together, but me as a sideman, and with our very dear um, friend Ken Brake, who uh, recorded the album and, you know, very sadly died in, in, in July of this year. Um, uh, we we thought, well, let's three of us get together. We get on so well. We have such fun together. Let's let's work on Stuart's songs and make an album. We made a first album called The Huddle House, um, and then we thought, well, let's make another one, and uh, and we did. And it was uh, it's an album which took years to to create. Yeah. And yeah, yes, and it was completely different because I was no longer the sideman. It was still Stuart's songs. But I was very much in a different capacity. Uh, I was, first of all, I shared some of the lead vocals and also I was responsible for most of the arrangements. So it was me trying to build the loveliest, um, what's the word? It's the loveliest box in which to show those jewels that he was composing. Uh, I thought I've got to do something. These are such wonderful songs. How can we make the most of them? And so we worked like mad on, the, on those. I mean, it's a record that is, every single detail is chiseled with a creative of precision. Even the, if you hear a mistake in it, it was, believe me, it was definitely left on purpose. Nice. So, and, and but, but we sat on the record for a very long time because um, Stuart was, uh, there was all this uh, program of re-releases with um, uh, Tiny Global, the, uh, the the record label, which put it out in the end. And so there were never there never was a, a right moment, and I was starting to get a bit 
impatience. I want it out, I want it out. And I think that when we were aware, I think when everybody became aware of how seriously ill Ken was, we thought we really got to make this happen. And Ken has got to see this, you know, see the light of day before he leaves us. And, um, and so it happened and I'm very happy it did in that, you know, Ken was, was with us long enough to realize how much people loved that record because the reception was, has been absolutely phenomenal really. And um, so, so that's how the record came about. And now Stuart is now already pushing me, say, well, when are we doing the next one? When are we doing the next one? I said, yeah, okay, so yes, we will do the next one. There's already a few, he's already sent me a few songs, but um, so yes, and it was released and um, in uh, May or June uh, of this year and uh, brought us an awful lot of very, very beautiful reviews. And we sold a few copies apparently, which is astonishing in this day and age. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I guess uh, besides the record, the record's coming out December 11th. Yep. Under clouds, and then you're doing the live gig. What else do you have planned for the future? Um, I think Survive. Um, uh, planning to beyond that. Um, uh, certainly I will, I will do some work with... Uh, I've also just um, finished recording some vocals for um, an American artist um, called Noah Wilson, who records under the name Mr. and Mrs. Muffins. And uh, so I recorded some vocals for him. Um, we've got a lot of songs um, ready to be rehearsed, not to be recorded, but to be rehearsed. So I think the next stage, once we have done what needs to be done with Thunderclouds, um, is to get ready for a new album, basically, uh, which will be with the same band, plus my usual collaborator, Danny Manners, who couldn't be with us because of time reasons and availability reasons, but is going to join the fold. Uh, and I've got a pretty good idea of what it's going to be like, and a pr pretty good idea of what which songs I want on it, but I'll keep it to that. I'm a bit superstitious when it comes to that. So let's wait until, you know, for the, for the time being, it's all about, at the moment, still about all about some of the clouds and making sure the baby has got, uh, you know, a decent childhood and uh, matures into a fine human being or a fine vinyl being. And uh, so that's, that's basically the, uh, that's basically what we're, we're aiming at. So yes, projects, there are still a few. Excellent. Well, that's all my questions. You got anything else you want to add? No, 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 no. I think I've, I've spoken for a long time. Um, and uh, all I've got to say is thank you for having me. And um, you for on the show. It's been a pleasure. Well, no, it's been my absolute pleasure. And uh, we'll keep in touch, I'm sure. And I, I hope one day that, you know, I haven't visited your, your side of, of the world for 13 years. The last time I was there was, um, well, musically speaking, I've been back, but musically speaking, the last time I was there was to play some keyboards at two gigs uh, which, uh, with a clientele at uh, the, the Barry Ballroom and uh, uh, the museum in Boston. Uh, oh, so wow. that's the last time, that's the last time we were, you know, I was around. So let's hope that find a way to uh, come and visit your shores that and say hello to our American friends. All right. That was great. Such wonderful stories and ideas about music. I had no idea Martin Newell's Goodnight Country Girl was recorded in the middle of a forest. Whew! That's a great tune, too. Do check out Louis Philippe's new album with the night mail. It's called Thunderclouds. Gorgeous songs on there. Out December 11th. And he's doing that internet gig he mentioned on December 16th. And yeah, track down the King of Luxembourg song Baby that he wrote. Pop perfection, man. 
In Southpaw news, the full story of Maxwell's Silver Hammer horror films is up at youngsouthpaw.com and on all the podcast streaming services. I also released the latest collection of podcast stories over at Bandcamp, youngsouthpaw.bandcamp.com. It's called Decalogue 5, over two hours of stories from yours truly. The Lost Archimedes album, which you can get at Bandcamp now, is going to be available on iTunes, Amazon, YouTube Music, and a few others this coming week. The Quietest gave it that great review, calling it far more interesting than your normal comedy album. Awesome. If you like these podcasts, please rate and review, share, all those very much appreciated. Thank you very much for listening, and I'm going to play you out with the latest Louis Philippe and the Nightmare single, The Mighty Owl which is a new video for as well. So check that out. Thanks, y'all. Wait till she spreads her wings Dark of a dark when no birds will sing She comes swooping through the air Fearless and stark is the mighty They knew her tricks The tale-telling signs And the mimetics She never looked that good before Cunning and cruel Is the mighty And boom.